You're listening to the Faith Made Welcome podcast, a progressive podcast of faith where we look at Christianity from a progressive Baptist tradition. This podcast is brought to you by Commonwealth Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. So whoever you are, wherever you are, or whatever you think about faith, you're welcome here. Please let us know what you think about our podcast by subscribing to it or by sharing it with someone who may be looking for a podcast like this. And we would love to hear your feedback. So please leave us a comment or question on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Let's get started. We're doing two today, so. We're doing two today. That's right. So we are recording the final episode in the Faith and Science, or is it Science and Faith series? Either yes. way, yeah. Yeah. I don't totally. think it, I don't, it doesn't matter. It totally is. Yeah. It's one of those. Yeah. Okay. Faith, well. faith, faith and science, faith, faith meets science. Well, intersectional kind of thing. We can just both say one of them at, at the same time. Yeah. And yeah. then, yeah. 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 Not sure. Um, on this one. Okay. Yeah, that was definitely me. Okay. Sorry about um, that. That's all right. All You're right. Still good? Okay. Okay. So, who do we have in the room today? Well, I'm Marty, pastor, co pastor at. Commonwealth Baptist Church. Yep. And we're missing Robin, but she's always with us in spirit. She always. She's always with us in spirit. I am Paul Fitzgerald. Uh, I don't know what I do. Uh, I, I oftentimes run the sound, but I've been stepping in on these because I am also a scientist. You know, some science degrees and a couple of weird things, which are fun. Uh, and so I was kindly asked to join in these faith and science podcasts in that, in that role. Yeah, cool. And then coming to us from Zoom... Hi, I'm Heidi Lawrence. I'm an associate professor of English at George Mason University, and I have a recently published book called Vaccine Rhetorics. Yeah, great. And I am still Sherry Spiegel. I was going to say, who are you? I, I'm, I'm getting there, Paul. Yeah, so I'm Sherry Spiegel, and I'm a deacon at Commonwealth Baptist Church, uh, but I am also uh, a professor of English, um, and so Heidi and I have some some commonalities in terms of where we've studied and how we've studied together. Um, and so it's kind of funny that in the middle of this faith and science uh, like series that in my mind, I'm like, well, clearly what we need is more rhetoricians. Um, mm -hmm. Science is great, but we need a bunch of rhetoric people. Uh, so yeah, so we have Heidi here and I've been excited about Heidi's book and her research on vaccine rhetoric for a long time. Um, so Paul, do you want to give the formal, cause I'm just going to gush about how Heidi's an awesome friend, but Paul, do you want to give the <laughs> uh, sure, formal sure. Heidi introduction? So, uh, the, the running, the running phrase I've been using for the last day or so is like, well, I have her dossier here in front of me and, um, I was fine Heidi going into this podcast and it was like, ah, it'll be, uh, I mean, piece of cake, nice and chill. Everything's relaxed. I'll just uh, pull down her CV here and check her out a little bit and get some information. And then the printer just kept spitting out these pages <laughs> with the stuff on it. And I was like, with each page that came out, I got a little more nervous. Uh, so uh, the, the formal version of this is Heidi Lawrence has a PhD in rhetoric and writing from Virginia Tech, <laughs> master's degree in English and professional writing and rhetoric concentration at George Mason University. Heidi, I hope this doesn't freak you out. Somebody reading your accolades <laughs> to you. Um, and a BA in English. at once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. BA in English from Mary Washington College when Mary Washington University was Mary Washington College, right? In, yes. In two thousand two, and then there's like all these pages. There's all these pages of monographs and articles and interviews and all this kind of cool stuff. All of which, um, a lot of which, 
Um, centers around vaccines, but a lot of which kind of gets into uh, all these other facets and aspects of of your interests and things that you've sort of been doing. And uh, I, I try to try to get a sense of what how this all could sort of be distilled. All these you know really neat interests that you have. Um, and I saw two phrases uh, that kind of kept jumping out at me when looking at uh, your your bio. One uh, is the the phrase medical rhetoric. And another one was medical humanist, mm-hmm. a medical yes. humanist. And I said, I have no experience in either, either one of those. Yeah. Either yeah. one of those. So uh, with, a, with a resume like this, it's, uh, I think we picked, a, we picked somebody good to have on to have this conversation mm-hmm. of um, faith and how it intersects with uh, medical stuff in general, but specifically vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think this is going to be a fun place where we can spend some time with science. We can spend some time with faith. Um, but then, of course, we can bring in rhetoric, which um, I think Heidi and I, we could probably spend a little time defining that um, as we do for our students and the rest of the world. But really, this is just rhetoric propaganda, really. Let's be honest. That's what this is, right? Um, <laughs> so, Heidi, how do you define rhetoric? Um, yes. Well, and first, before I start, I want to just thank you all so much for having me today. And I, um, I'm really excited for this conversation. Like I said, it's given me an opportunity to think through aspects of my work and aspects of this issue in ways that I haven't thought about in these explicit ways. So I'm just so excited for this opportunity and for your podcast and everything. Um, so the way that I define uh, rhetoric f- for most audiences is I use the Aristotelian version, mm-hmm. which is rhetoric is the ability to see in all in any situation the available means of persuasion. And so, so much so that that's always like the first quiz question mm-hmm. on the first mm-hmm. quiz of the semester every year of every class I teach. And I, what I always say is, um, or I, I like to think of rhetoric as having these intersecting qualities of having an analytic capacity and a productive capacity. And in Aristotle's definition, we see that it's not just the ability to persuade, but the ability to see the available means of persuasion, to walk into a situation and to say, okay, what's going on here? Um, Who's talking to whom about what? And and what are they trying to accomplish? Uh Um, So it's that analytic capacity of understanding situations and people and what they need. And then also a productive capacity to say, and now I'm going to change this situation. Now I'm going to make positive change um, and try and whatever it is, right? Achieve the vote I want or seek the outcome I'm seeking or move this group in a, one direction or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so rhetoric is is everywhere, right? It's therefore it's it's everything and everywhere. That's what Sherry says all um, the time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I really like to think about rhetoric as the set of tools we use so that we can actually live together as humans, right? Like science tells us what we are and then rhetoric tells us how we can deal with each other. <laughs> right? So, um, and then within that, I think there's space to try to figure out, okay, if rhetoric is how we figure out how to live together and science is like what we are and what everything around us is, what is faith related to those two things? Well, hearing these definitions, it, it reminded me of like Paul. Paul is uh, a Spin I don't master. think you're talking about this, Paul. No, are you? Paul no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am a spin master. Biblical, uh, <laughs> yeah, Paul. Go. Um, you know, the the Bible is full of rhetoric. That's all mm-hmm. it is. It's it's yeah. um, making the case of of faith, 
and it's helping us trying to figure out how the best way to live. And you'll notice that Paul rhetoric is all over the place because every church needed to hear something different to how to live. So his rhetoric was different to the church in, the, in Ephesus as it was in Colossae and mm-hmm. all these other different places. So rhetoric is, is life, basically. It's part of life. It's how we kind of govern ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the argument we try to make with students all the time, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, for sure. So then we add that to the word rhetoric. We add medical, right, as we, we step into Heidi's world. Um, and then eventually we're going to add vaccine rhetoric. We're going to think about that specifically. Um, but, Paul, you were also interested in uh, this other word that Heidi uses to describe herself. Medical humanist. Indeed. Medical yeah. humanist. Yeah. Um, I mean, medical rhetoric, uh, I, I get medical humanist. Uh, what, uh, what did, walk us through, can you walk us through? Yeah, the medical humanities are kind of a, a, it's a much broader field, rhetoric being sort of one sub part of that, um, all of which are really interested in the social and cultural implications of health and medicine. So, um, so what people's lived experience of disease or illness or health looks like, how they interact with powerful systems like medicine, um, how they use language or use various forms of communication in those spaces. Um, but using the tools and the the abilities of the humanities to understand that. So looking at narratives and stories, being interested in the particular rather than the generalizable, um, thinking about a whole person and their kind of life space or psychosocial space um, and how they encounter health and medicine are the broad questions of the medical humanities that rhetoric is a part of, or medical rhetoric is a part of. Mm-hmm. And I, my favorite, um, sort of echoing what Sherry said about how like, Science tells us what's in the world and rhetoric tells us how to be in it. My favorite cartoon of that is um, science can tell you how to clone a T-Rex, but the humanities can tell you why that might be a bad idea. The Jurassic Park. I was just curious, is there a, a story behind your interest in how you got to uh, do this work that you're doing? Yeah, um, a couple of, di- I mean, I'm sure we all share this, right? A couple of different ways that you get to yeah. that space. Um, but most specifically, I was a graduate student at Virginia Tech, and I was assigned to work on this project originally um, as a part of my research assistantship. And I was like, sure, people are concerned about vaccines, whatever, I don't care. Um, you know, I'm a grad student, I'll do what I'm told. And so it was interesting. But I was eventually assigned by my department chair at the time, Carolyn Rood, who I think mm-hmm. Sherry knows, um, to go on this trip to this to Richmond where legislators were meant to interact with all graduate students from across the state. And we were kind of going to sing for our supper a little bit, like sort of <laughs> say like, hey, people who invest in Virginia graduate education, <laughs> here's what we're doing. And she said, go and talk about the vaccine research so that we can show what English departments have the capacity to do. We're not just um, not that this is a bad thing, but we're not just reading Shakespeare and, and obscure texts, but we're out there in the world studying real phenomena that are happening And so I made a poster and got in a van with seven other grad students from tech and uh, started to do this presentation. And what was so fascinating was I found that I had a long line of people who wanted to talk to me and they weren't the legislators, but they were advisors from like VCU and UVA and medical schools across Virginia. 
And they were so eager to understand, oh, great. Someone in English is studying this problem I've had in my practice for years. What have you found out? Can you help us with this problem? And I thought that that was such a powerful moment as a scholar and as a humanist to sort of say like, oh, this is a real problem that's affecting real people. And maybe I have something that can help. And so that was like the real linchpin. I was on a totally different scholarly trajectory and huh. things like that. Um, but that moment was like a total, a total turning point. So I came back and I told my dissertation advisor, even though I was like, again, already working on another project. I said, I think I want to switch to the vaccine research. And she said, well, take the weekend to think about it. But I think you should absolutely do that. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. So it was just really that having that felt experience of talking to someone who's having a problem and trying to help them solve it using the tools of our discipline. Like, what else do you get into academics to do? Right. So the title of your book is Vaccine Rhetorics. And uh, I sent a picture, well, I sent a link to the to the book to Paul the other day. Uh, and the first thing he said was, oh, what a great what cover. A yeah, it's a cool cover. And and I remember this because Heidi and I have talked about uh, that cover quite a bit. Um, and not to put you on the spot, but I think that there's an interesting way in which the cover of your book uh, evolved. And I think it might point to some of the the tricky little bits that are, are just so prevalent in the world of vaccine rhetoric. Um, do you want to share a little bit of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, first I want to say my publisher is wonderful. Thank you, Ohio State University Press, for publishing my book. We'll have a link in the show and, notes. Right? Yes, we will. Yeah, we'll have a link in the show <laughs> yep. notes. So. Thank you, thank you. And I, I did sort of realize, like, I I would never want to be a like a book cover designer. I think that would be the worst, uh, the hardest job to have because mm -hmm. you have to take what someone has worked on for 10 years and make it into an image and then you have to make them happy about that like there's no, that's a really tough thing to do and so um i hadn't really thought about the cover until the very end when they were like so what what do you want your cover to be and i was like well i don't know you pick something i'm sure it'll be fine i just want my book published and so i got the first photograph of it and my wonderful editor, editor, Tara, was like, I love this. I think you'll love it. I think it's great. And I every sentence was like, oh, no, she's bracing me for something. <laughs> and then I saw I saw the image and it was just like, well, the book is called Vaccine Rhetorics, two syringes on the front, done. Like, it just felt so literal. Mm -hmm. And um, and the original image had in so there there are two syringes and on the left hand side there was like a kind of bright green liquid and on the right there was a bright blue liquid mm -hmm. and i kept looking at this cover going i don't like this i don't like this i can't figure out what's wrong with it and um i sent it around to a few people and they're like i think it's fine like you just get over it and then i showed it to my husband who is not an academic or anything related half listens to most of this stuff about vaccines and I said, what's wrong with this? Like, why can't I get past this? And I actually then realized like it was resonant with all of these anti-vax images online that show like babies being stuck by bunches of needles with like liquid, go a bright green liquid going into them. And so I copied and, you know, all those links and I sent them back and I was like, this, I think I figured, you know, can we just change this part of it? And so then they changed it to clear liquid. But, but to speak to what you're saying, Sherry, I thought it was interesting that Again, it's a hard um, image to represent. If you look at the covers of other books about vaccines, they're all covered with like crying babies. Um, it's a hard thing to sort of figure out like what's most resonant about the issue. And then, you know, 
relating that to like how people use that those images popularly and how we understand like what goes into our bodies and you know this idea of like bright green liquid turning you into something else is both like actually kind of what's happening and then also yeah. like this um this really interesting sort of fictionalization and, and scare tactic that you mm -hmm. can use to sort of make people scared about that so. it's it's interesting because like when i first looked at that image uh you know the first draft version that you showed me um i didn't say this to you at the time but all i could think of was like teenage mutant ninja turtles <laughs> and like the, the like the green, green stuff, stuff yeah. that like turns them into mutant ninja turtles and so i was like hmm i can see why you might not be yeah super happy yeah i i, I thought of just like like so like in reanimator the hp lovecraft movie where he injects the glowing green stuff into body parts and they reanimate and come back to life so the the rhetoric there is that the vaccine represents that we're injecting you with radioactive glowing green plutonium based goo which is going to uh, turn you into a transhuman something yeah maybe uh, yeah. maybe that's it yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I totally understood from the designer's perspective. It looks, you know, you're just looking for visual differentiation. But um, and with it gone, I admit it's like, oh, now it's really just like two syringes on the cover of a book about <laughs> vaccines. Like that's it. Um, but yeah, no, it could have that different kind of connotation if you look at it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things we um, we do announcements for the church every week, and uh, we've been advertising a flu clinic that's like coming up that's actually today. So by the time this comes out, it will not be relevant. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I've been doing the slides for that, and it took me a long time um, to figure out what image to use. And I was thinking about um, I was thinking about your book cover when I was making this choice. Like, um, how do I uh, as you know, a member of this church community that's trying to, you know, represent a community service. Um, how do I represent that idea of the flu shot? Um, but in a way that's not like, yeah, you don't want the crying baby slide, no, right? No, 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 <laughs> right. You yeah. don't. So why what did is you that... end up choosing, Sherry? Um, well, one week... I think I just chose like an image that was just like a, a little post-it that said, get your flu shot. And then the next week it was like uh, someone like in scrubs holding a sign that says, get your flu shot. So keeping the shot out of it and focusing on the go do it kind of element right. is mm -hmm. what we ended up with. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about when y'all were talking like the, all the TV shows that that you know the bad guys and the tv dramas use like some kind of vaccine to knock out the uh the mm -hmm. victim and and it's kind of all this fearful stuff about that we get in our minds just from like just a tv show that why why is it vaccines seem to be so fearful for us yeah um why I, are they the weapon why, why are they right? the weapon <laughs> yeah. right and why can, help us help us yeah um so i mean the from i guess from the scientific point of view i mean vaccines really became sort of fearful just in my own residential memory when the completely and totally and utterly false narrative of a link between vaccines and aut autism first started to come out and that research has been debunked so many times, you know, that I'm nervous about even talking about it because now I don't want somebody who doesn't know about saying, oh, my God, Paul said vaccines cause autism. It's like, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. Uh, that I mean, but that's when 
when that research came out, of course, every news media picked it up and started to run with it because um, autism was becoming this big, scary thing that everybody was worried about. Oh, my God, my kid, you know, and it, it became it became something fearful that got got linked to um, to the whole concept of vaccination. And, and I think um, and uh if you could speak to this, Heidi, that would be fantastic. You know, if you if you can add things. Before that, vaccines were the things that got rid of polio. You know, it, it was something that got rid of smallpox. It was something yeah. that, I mean, there's this awesome scene in uh, the HBO uh, John Adams series mm-hmm. where they they're trying to inoculate. You know, this one I read. They're they're trying to inoculate the kids against what is it, smallpox. And yeah. so they find a cow with cowpox because the virus is so simple. And they actually like cut some of the goo out of one of these sores on this cow. And they used, and this is the Dr. Jenner work. You would, you would cut a little, little slit in the back of your neck and they would shove this goo in there. Um, so you would get this mild case of, of cowpox, which would just similar enough to smallpox to actually inoculate you against it. Right or or sort of to vaccinate you against that just scared me. And that was yeah. It's like (laughs) if the infection didn't kill you, the smallpox definitely wouldn't. Right. So uh, you know, so you wouldn't die of smallpox. You would die of an infection, but you wouldn't die of smallpox. Um, But yeah, it it seems like this this whole idea with you know vaccines being fearful. This this does this predate the the autism thing or not? Yeah. So the history of vaccination is always kind of accompanied by a history of pushback and skepticism and fear of the vaccine. Um, smallpox is really interesting because the the desire to prevent smallpox obviously predates Jenner's vaccine, which comes out in 1793, or he de- develops in 1793. Earlier processes involved this process called variolation, which is, again, a kind of a version of what you're talking about, Paul. They would um, take the crust of either, uh, of someone else who had smallpox and kind of grind it into a powder crust, or sometimes crust. into like crust. Oh yeah. What yeah, is like crust? Like pus. Like Ooh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Super gross. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> we are not talking about pizza crust. Yeah, at all. it's like okay. we're, let's define some terms here. Right? So, <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. So right. I don't know no if any of you had um had chicken pox as a child, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, you're itchy and then if you itch it, it kind of pustules over mm-hmm. and that's much more pronounced in smallpox right and so there are these these pustules and they would get really large and then they would burst that's what would cause people to get really big smallpox scars on them because they would mm-hmm. sort of burst and cause these really serious injuries um, and then they would crust over and dry and so they would scrape them off of people's skin grind them down and then you to be in the process of variolation you get these little cuts on your arm and they would just put like Kind of massage the powder into um, your arm and you'd get this really mild case of smallpox which was then protective so that was something that kind of traveled across at least um asia and europe was something that people did to try to prevent smallpox and then jenner was the one who realized that mm-hmm. milkmaids who contracted cowpox from cows uh were protected without the serious consequences that could happen from variolation and so developed the vaccine from there so anyways, um, and but all that being said, it was really dangerous to get vaccinated yeah. in the early days of this process yeah. or to do anything to prevent smallpox. But it was also a really serious disease that could kill a lot of people in a really painful, awful way. And so there's a different kind of risk benefit calculus in those early days. And this really dates through the early part of the 20th century. 
You have people getting all kinds of other diseases from poorly made um, vaccinations. This is like, you know, pre-FDA. Yeah, pre- this is pre, it's pre-penicillin, right? So everything that is pretty much pre-penicillin, it's risky to ever have anything cut your skin. Let alone something intentionally sort of Yeah, something really it. dangerous on its own. Yeah, so people yeah. contracted yellow fever, serious sepsis. They lost limbs that had been vaccinated. Um, uh, yeah. it was a, I mean, it was a serious practice. Now, also, it helped to slow the spread of disease and eventually led to the eradication of, of smallpox. But alongside this, there is a long history of anti-vaccination movements that were well organized in different populations in Britain and the United States that tried to push back against the the mandate of that practice. Um, So the fear of vaccines dates to the beginning of its practice and even well through um, the the 60s and 70s and 80s, there are different fearful moments of vaccination. In the 60s, you have um, in early 70s, you have the a flu vaccine that comes out that causes increased cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So in kind of a, a precursor, I think, to what we might be looking at uh, for a COVID vaccine, right? This a big push for everyone to get this vaccination, but then a lot of concern about side effects and what might happen um, as a large portions of the population are vaccinated. Um, even with the polio vaccine, there was um, this, this sort of infamous Cutter incident, wherein uh, the vaccines that came out of Cutter laboratories were improperly deactivated and so mm. ended up infecting thousands of children with polio. Um, and then in the early 80s, you have kind of what some historians cite as the beginning of our contemporary vaccine controversy with a group of parents that organized against the uh, the pertussis vaccine. Mm. And they claimed that similarly to what we have today with MMR, that um, the pertussis portion of the DPT vaccine at the time caused their children to c- develop encephalitis and lifelong injuries as a result of the vaccine. And so that that's sort of um, that kind of early pushback in an organized mm-hmm. fashion by parents saying, this is gonna cause this unknown injury in my child and therefore I should have a choice to um, to get the vaccine or not. So, so yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people, their most, their clearest touchstone is that MMR autism uh, connection, which still has a thread that is, you know, current in our current discourse, right. but it dates right. longer right. than that. And it's, you know, it's incredibly complicated as it changes over time. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And when this um, <clears throat> sort of crash lands into uh, Marty, like some, some faith-based reasons, why one would be concerned, you know, I, I sort of poked around on the internet because that's what we sort of do, you know, it's like faith in vaccine is Google it, right? And the thing comes up and, you know, the, the thing that, that kind of hit the top, I mean, the, the thing that I was expected was, you know, kind of these down these lines of, well, if God cares for us, then he's going to, you know, his will is going to play out. Why should I bother getting vaccines if he wants me to be healed? Great. And if he doesn't, well, it's part of God's plan, whatever it might be. But, you know, evidently there is this other thread um, that the Catholic Church was actually uh, more more involved with on some of these vaccines being produced um, using human cell lineages sort of as the carrier for it, evidently from human cells that were harvested sort of from from whenever and that that was intersecting with faith a little bit too in some in some hmm. ways which i don't know if i have uh informed clarity on but there was a little bit of a stink about hmm. that you know that we shouldn't we be able to have vaccines that are not you know coming from 
you know, the harvested from fetus tissue uh, to, to, to generate vaccines. So Marty, in, in your experience as a, as a person of faith, <laughs> have you seen, uh, in, encountered faith communities that are in, opposed in any way to vaccines or do you have any, any insight in No, this, this is a, like a whole new world to me. Um, I think this, has this topic kind of kind of come to the surface pretty recently with faith and vaccines, especially being a parent? I know that in the parent circles that I run in, there's this talk about, do I get my kids vaccinated or, or not? And mm-hmm. there's that whole debate. And I'm like, well, why, why wouldn't you? Like, I don't understand the logic. And um, I don't know where it intersects with faith, but that, you know, I think people who are totally against um, this idea of getting vaccines and medicine and stuff is that uh, my body is a temple and God will, you know, like you were saying, mm-hmm. if God will take care of me. Um, but, you know, in my line of thinking of, about faith, God gave me a brain to think that I might need more help. I mean, this goes on to... Um, not just with vaccines, but with like mental health, uh, mm-hmm. getting medication for for mental health. And so I, this is all new for me. So I, I'm eager to kind of like dive into maybe your experience, Heidi, of like where have you kind of run in contact or bumped heads with maybe uh, more of a religious people and what were they saying? And maybe what kind of hope could you give us as we kind of wrestle with this as well? Yeah, so um, so it's yeah, it's really interesting. I always like to think of vaccine controversy as existing of a bunch of buckets that different people can kind of fall in. And a lot of times those buckets correspond with other things, other beliefs you have or ways that you see the world. Uh-huh. And so as people of various religious backgrounds kind of interact with vaccines, there are different things that I think kind of intersect with our concerns about vaccination as it relates to religion and faith. Um, the first of that is really relates to the constitution and our laws around vaccinations. Uh-huh. So. We have vaccination through the 19th century. It, as we were just saying, it's mm-hmm. relatively unregulated, but it is mandated when there are outbreaks. Um, then we have the early 20th century of the kind of uh, the precedent, the Supreme Court case that sets the precedent for national vaccine mandates is Jacobson v. Massachusetts. It's 1905. And this was a person, uh, Henning Jacobson, who felt that he was at undue risk to vaccination and didn't want to be vaccinated and uh, ended up being compelled to be so by the Supreme Court. Mm. The Supreme Court said, no, actually, the individual does not have the right to sort of say, um, no, I don't want to participate when faced with a public health mandate. And that has carried through uh, over time. The main challenge to vaccination mandates, uh, or come, yes, comes from, I'm sorry, the main challenge to vaccination comes through the mandate for school entry. So right now, I was going to say, yeah, 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 because I had to get the thing. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's when like that's like kind of where the rubber meets the road there right Mm -hmm. now, at least there's no way to like catalog who has what vaccines and and to track adults. That's one of the reasons why adult vaccination is really complicated. But kids can be vaccinated pretty easily and we can control that through when they go to school. 
And so every state has a law mandating vaccines. And every state also says when there is a possibility for exemption. All states offer a medical exemption, but some offer a relig religious exemption. And this is uh, the argument is built into our First Amendment mm -hmm. that protects oh. the free practice of religion. And so this is sort of what we were, I was mentioning a little bit before we got started today is a lot of um, at least the legal and technical and policy uh, articulations of vaccine skepticism as they relate to religion are really associated with religious institutions. And so people being able to say, I am a member of this religious institution. This institution says I cannot participate in this practice. Therefore, if you force me to, you're impeding upon my freedom of religion. Mm -hmm. And this is something that um, there are some kind of very classic groups that really make this strong case, the mm -hmm. Amish being one of them. Um, those who practice Orthodox Judaism and Christian scientists are kind of the big groups right, that right, right. really push back against this. <laughs> so at least in our in, in the like kind of legal and policy area, um, religion and the, the 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 institution itself is something that can kind of stand in between the the individual and the vaccine mandate. Although when that gets challenged, it doesn't typically work out in the favor of religious institutions and rather um, really? states end up having more power to vaccinate than people often realize. Huh. But I'm curious in the course of that though, this is why can I answer this question is um, this podcast is called Faith Made Welcome. And I can, my own understanding, not being a person who's actively part of a religious organization, I am curious about this, right? This idea that like religious freedom is the thing that kind of allows people to push back against vaccination. Is that a, a value or belief that kind of gets extended to people of faith? Like that's, those aren't necessarily equivalent populations. And I'm just curious for any of your perspectives or experience, um, how, do, how does that like play out? Is, is like, how do, I guess like the contradictions or the, the complexities of religion and faith, how do those end up mapping to people's experiences or views on something like vaccination? Hmm. That's a great question. I agree completely. <laughs> I agree completely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're the Baptist tradition. So we are very high on separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. um, but we're also um, advocates for government to make sure that everybody gets to exercise their freedom to worship, our freedom not to worship. That's their freedom. Uh -huh. um, so we are always, I feel like we're always, when the line is drawn between uh, church and state, the Baptist tradition seems to be always right on the line, uh, making sure that um, the government is making uh, religion available or not available, however you want to, however you want to do that. So um, I know that from the Baptist tradition, that's where we land. Um, but I was, I was very interested in what you said about um, the states having more power when it comes to the vaccines that pushes back on religion, because religion, you're, you, Nobody wants to like mess with religion and religious groups. I mean, that's like going up against God, right? You don't yeah, want right. to, you want right, to, right, don't right. want to pick that fight. So I was very shocked when you said like it doesn't always go in their the religion's favor when they push back on vaccines. 
which I don't have a problem with because I think that's yeah. a good thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but still, it's there that, that tension there that goes over on a lot of things, like just um, any kind of injustice, uh, voting rights, civil rights. Um, I mean, we're always on that line of, of, of advocating and yet keeping separate our freedoms. Mm-hmm. And we got to... It's a it's a check and balance for Baptists to make sure that we're we are uh, advocating for freedom for everyone, not just for Baptists. Like it doesn't just go our way, right? We're not doing it because we feel like our religion is the religion, and we want it to benefit us. We, as Baptists, we are supposed to believe that we have the freedom for everyone to. Um, worship how they want to, believe how they want to, or not believe their choice. So I have a question, Marty. Do you think that's all Baptists, or no. do you think that's that's our Baptists? Parti- yeah. No. So do you want to? I feel like I'm like, no. well, let's the, the let's Baptist get more tradition, specific because, like, yeah. I can see um, we're in Robin's church, uh, Robin's church, Robin's <laughs> office right now. <laughs> Marty just works here. It's Robin's yeah, church, yeah, yeah. no. Um, but we're in Robin's office, and up uh, above Marty's head is a sign that she's always had there from the Baptist Joint Committee that says separation of church and state is good for both. And I, but I think I've heard other Baptist traditions maybe that don't value that separation as much. So do you want to say more about what our Baptist is? <laughs> well, our Baptist leans very much on the four freedoms of Baptists. And one of them is the freedom of religious liberty. Um, now, more conservative Baptists, such as the Southern Baptist Convention, mm-hmm. um, they see that and don't, really exercise that freedom they kind of say we this is how god sees our how we are supposed to live and that flows over into government and policy so they um you know it they push the envelope of separation of church and state even though as baptists they believe it so it it blurs the line of seeing how they're actually called Baptists, but we're not Baptists. Mm-hmm. That's, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, but as the Baptist tradition, we believe in a freedom of religious liberty for all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of taken a sidestep toward vac- vaccinations, but that's kind of where I feel like even with these vaccines, we, we bump that line and religion is like bumping it and saying, this is not how we don't, it's the unknown. So since we don't know, it's not of God. It's, it's kind of the mindset I kind of mm. think about. Like the unknown is 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 what's bad, mm-hmm. right? Like for conservative Christians, they they know. In their in their mind, they know that God is is acts this way, does these things, told us how to live this way, and anything outside of that is is wrong. Mm-hmm. So when you place a, the topic of vaccines in in that kind of thinking, vaccines could be like, well, this is this is voodoo, witchcraft, or whatever you want to call it. Right. You know, right. it's just right. it's right. bad. It's not of God. 
Well, and I think and how that, do you know what is of God? Right, and like I think that's the tension of like when you want certainty in the world of science, where there is not always the guarantee of certainty. Like they're yeah. they're at. I mean, this is what we've been talking about: the doubt mm-hmm. of yeah, right. and the and the narrative. Right. Uh, It was surprising that she opened up with the word like this is a narrative story and I was like this is what we've been talking about this whole time. time, All the stories we tell ourselves. And and Marty, um, I'm not the, I am not the one probably to bring this up, but I mean in, we we also started this conversation talking about Paul, not me, uh, biblical biblical Paul. I mean, if if I recall from, you know, 30 years ago, right, when I was in my own uh, Lutheran tradition, um, Paul used to say this, he was like, follow the laws, yeah, and love God. You know, but I mean, yeah. he was he was clear. It's like Jesus there's, there's these laws. That. Yeah, yeah. There's these laws out there. <laughs> Better follow them because if you don't, it's not going to go your way. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. So this was like this like church state thing was kind of addressed. Right. In the New Testament, a little bit. Yeah. You know, with, uh-huh. I mean, uh, Jesus pretty, pretty said, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar, what is Caesar's, yeah. and give to uh-huh. God what is God's. There's this separation, um, you know, and but you know with the the rich young ruler, he asked what what he needs to do to inherit eternal yeah. life. We talked about that in the other. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what we found out is that he said, follow the rules. What what are the laws? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Jesus put another task on it. Well, then go sell everything and follow me. Mm-hmm. Well, then there's an added thing to it. It's like... Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's all, it's all the narrative that we tell. And then there's this doubt and... When we come back to science, which we've kind of learned in our past podcasts, is that they're very similar because they all have this sense of doubt, scientific mm-hmm. doubt, faith doubt, and it's all in this pot and it's just rolling around. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that, to me, when it comes back to rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. Because exactly, rhetoric says like, um, well, looks at science and says, okay, thank you. You can tell us a lot of different information about how a phenomenon is happening and what the consequences might be of that. And if we let a virus go unchecked, how many people will become ill? And of those people, how many people will be seriously ill? And we have epidemiology and virology and immunology and all these different things telling us what those phenomena are. But it's rhetoric Mm -hmm. that says what we should do about it. Like, okay, we know coronavirus has mutated. We know that it is circulating in the community. We know this number of people are being becoming ill. We know, we know these things. But the rhetoric of it is, well, what do we do about that? What should we do? What ought we do? What are the appropriate measures to protect each other, to protect our communities, to to protect our rights? Like, how, how are we going to make decisions? And that's really the rhetorical component of mm-hmm. anything involving medicine, science, health, um, things that are ultimately decisions of community. And I think that that's another complicating factor of all of this is that vaccination decisions feel very individual, uh-huh. but they just simply aren't. I mean, it, of course right. it feels individual. You're getting a needle stuck in your arm in your doctor's mm-hmm. office. You are being presented with a choice as an individual. Um, and so it feels private, but it's actually the most public thing that you do uh, in terms of what goes into your body. If I choose to take a statin, that just affects me. It doesn't really affect anyone else. But when I choose the flu vaccine, I might not be giving myself any benefit, really. I might only be doing that to keep from passing it to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that's not a way that we often think about vaccines. It's not how we experience vaccines. 
And so I, I agree. I think so much of it is reshaping the narrative or readdressing the narratives that we're telling ourselves um, about what public health is and our responsibilities and our engagement to it. Because mm-hmm. um, it's there whether we like want to believe in or, it or not. Or like recognizing that tension. Like, I mean, I, I, like the way you just described that, it was like, yeah, you know, like we spend a lot of time talking about the right to privacy with health, right? Like like HIPAA is all about that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like we, we privatize it, we make it very individualized. But yeah, you're right, like vaccination, like there are parts of our, you know, part of our health conversation isn't private, right? Um, that's why, I mean, there are all these signs now telling us to wash our hands. Like it's an individual choice, but it's also for the community good, right? Yeah, and it, it, it's like taxes. You know, when the, when the money comes out of your bank account, it's extremely personal, right? Um, but the only time you're going to benefit from that is when you're driving down the street on a nicely paved road or, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever yeah. these people do with our tax money, you know? So it's, it is uh, absolutely, Heidi. I, I, I think that's yeah. an interesting perspective that, you know, the, the pain is felt figuratively and literally by you in your arm or yeah. in your butt or whatever that inje- wherever that injection goes. And um, if you go to the rainforest to get this malaria vaccine, they, they usually put it in your hip. Okay, I was like, like, what it comes vaccines? Right out of the fridge. It's cold <laughs> and it's thick, and you have this like welt on your butt. Anyway, um, okay. and babies, babies get vaccinated in their in their thighs. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's that's like, very public and very loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's bad for vaccine PR. Yeah, it's bad PR, right. But the babies don't understand what's happening. I have to say, like, my my son and I just, he went to his doctor's appointment on Thursday this week, and I got a flu shot, and he got a, I I thought he was just getting a flu shot. He was getting a bunch of vaccines, and this was the phase four. He's had vaccines since he was born, but this was the first time he was, like, old enough to realize Mm -hmm. And he knew he was like, Mm-mm, no, I do not want that. And I was like, well, you know, no, it'll be fine. It'll be okay. Like outwardly lying to him. <laughs> and and then him just sitting there and gripping me and crying because, I mean, he he just like, <laughs> I just inflicted harm on it. You know what I mean? And that's very literal way. And having to explain to him, like, with this, we do this to keep you from getting sick. We do this to have, so, you know, your school is healthy. So everyone stays healthy. We do this to, to help ourselves and everyone else. And him just sort of looking at me like, oh, so like my, my arms are throbbing right now. Who cares? And <laughs> this hurts. Yeah. And that's it. Right. You know, that's that yeah, tension yeah. Um, that we're, we're having that with our own selves and with our, our communities about vaccination all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, we took our kids to their well child visits and um, they're like, am I gonna have to get a shot? I was like, I don't know, I did, the doctor knows, they'll just tell you, just, just you can do this. And then, you know, we got there and I was like, no, you don't have any shots there. They were like, yes! <laughs> like it was like they won or the lottery or something. Yeah. They were just like all excited. And I was like, it was just a shot, you know, but it, I, I get it. It's like this, this fear of like, pain on me and I don't care about everybody else but it hurts me yeah Yeah. I mean there's a lesson in this though for the for the greater in the greater spiritual sense I mean pain inflicted on me for the good of my community around me and is that something that I'm willing to do and if if the answer is no you know what does that say and if the answer is yes then is there a a lesson in this I mean is part of 
you know, love everyone as explicitly stated in Luke as the, uh, or in uh, in John as the Probably objective. Probably not just there. Too. Yeah, it's a couple other places here and there, I think. You it's know. kind of a theme. Yeah, it comes up once, every once in a while. Only once. Yeah. Is this part of that, though? It's, you know, love yeah. your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, get a damn vaccine. I don't, <laughs> it, yeah, I've never thought about getting vaccines, flu shots, as as thinking it as benefit for the community. Yeah. I thought it was just to take care of me, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that's yeah. a very uh, Christian concept is we we work for the good of the community. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, that was one thing I was going to say in response to something you were saying earlier, Marty, is, um, you know, we talk about a, a lot of times the focus in vaccination exam uh, discussion is anti-vaxxers and people who are skeptical. But one of the things I try to emphasize in my work is that everyone has a position on this, whether you want it or not, right? We all have Mm -hmm. to, we have to have these vaccines as a part of life. So we all already have a position. And so therefore all beliefs exist on a spectrum Mm -hmm. and we are all gonna have skepticisms and concerns at different points in time. And, and we're all gonna support or be against things at different points in time for a lot of different reasons. And I will say that of the work I have done where uh, faith and religion come up in the work I'm doing with a, a population, one clear stream of concern for others associated with religion and faith is is really strong and in positive ways as well. Mm-hmm. So I did some work as a graduate student with a small community of people who were not vac- were not participating in a free vaccine clinic and they wanted to understand why the Pub- Department of Public Health. And you know, some people said things like, well, I can afford a vaccine, so I don't want to take vaccine from vaccines from someone else because like they need that resource and I don't mm-hmm. want to be selfish and take take it when I don't really need it. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, I, I don't um, I don't want to be perceived to be weak. Right. Because the sort of some people think of flu vaccines mm-hmm. is only something that sick people need to get because mm-hmm. that was the case for a very long time. Um, and so, like, I don't want people to think of my family as weak. And that links up with that that community. We weren't studying them because they were a very religious community, but they were. Um, There was a lot of participation in church and things like that in that area. Um, And the idea of, you know, if if my pastor or if my church had offered this in their space, I would have felt more comfortable with it. Or um, a message of like taking care of my neighbor, taking care of someone else, that would have been more persuasive to me, but rather like the government issuing a public health outreach program to me just didn't feel like the kind of thing I wanted to participate in. And so I I think that, you know, taking care of others is something that is naturally associated with faith communities. And I think it's something that um, for really good purposes is a set of beliefs and opinions held by those who are in faith communities. So I think that, again, you know, across the spectrum, it's not just religion and anti-vaxxers, but also um, I think religion and wanting to care for community and wanting to help that through vaccination yeah. too. So that the that, those perspectives existing on that spectrum. Yeah, I never really had to think about it in those terms. It's very interesting mm-hmm. and yeah. it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. I want the best for my neighbor, what do I need to do? Mm-hmm. Um, Not give them pertussis, tuberculosis, <laughs> smallpox. Smallpox. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anything that you can fix for 20 bucks at CVS, you exactly. know, is, uh, anything yeah. for 20 but bucks I, at CVS. But I love this because that's, that's the power of rhetoric and studying rhetoric, right? Because like how much does 
our relationship to vaccination change if we start stop saying, make this personal choice for your own health and you start saying, how does your choice to vaccinate impact your community? It's a totally different conversation, right? Yeah. yeah. So Heidi, <laughs> oh, go ahead. Or, or, go ahead. All right. Um, so we're so polite. Um, so we've talked a lot about doubt um, and I'm just kind of curious, like in your research about vaccination, like how have you seen narratives uh, related to the idea of doubt, like driving how people negotiate conversations about vaccination? Because I imagine doubts at the center often. Yeah, doubt and fear, right? Yeah. Um, of lots of different things happening. So we're in a very positive space in vaccination right now. It's like roads. It's like great things that happen in society. When we all work together, we can achieve mutually a bit, uh, advantageous outcomes, all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But, but we know that vaccines do have negative consequences too, both acknowledged and unacknowledged. So there is a vaccine injury compensation program that it exists to compensate people who get very rare, but still that happen, um, consequences from vaccination. So yes, I feel very good about my public, my, my tax money going into a road if it runs well and it's great, but I feel differently if I'm driving over a bridge and, or my sister's driving over a bridge and you know, runs, it collapses because of a crappy public works investment, right? Like mm -hmm. I feel differently about it then. And, and it's something that's a, that's a real, this is what my book kind of argues, a real materiality, a, a material reality that isn't always acknowledged in pro-vaccine discourse, which is that there, you can be harmed from a vaccine. It's, it, it's not just a sore arm and a fever the next day. Um, there are real adverse events that happen after vaccination that parents have a real reason to be knowledgeable about and concerned about. So that's not something that people are inventing or it's a fiction or something mm -hmm. like that. Now, the extent of those injuries, how frequent and how common those injuries happen, how, uh, how much they affect a child over the lifespan, those things are a lot of areas of dispute, um, but they are still a, a source of concern. Mm -hmm. and, and also we have then a, a real right as, um, as autonomous patients in a medical system, because that is some, that's a real reality too, mm -hmm. to understand and be informed about what risks we're taking on. And, um, and I, I think that that's, that's another source of doubt too. Is this really as safe as the government tells me it is safe? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have real historic reasons to tr distrust or be skeptical of what the government tells us, particularly people in, in um, marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. they, they ha we have a real reason to say, hey, wait a minute here. Are you really telling me the truth? Is that really what's going to happen mm -hmm. here? Have you really studied it in people like me? Do you really know what the impacts for, the, um, uh, for me are going to be like for this over the long run? And so, yes, there is this way in which vaccination is a communal effort and it's a community effort, but we do have, there, there are reasons to be doubtful, to be skeptical, to be fearful that are based in reality, that you don't have to go into the depths of the internet and crazy conspiracy theories and fraudulent studies to say, no, 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 actually that's pretty reasonable. It's it, given the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, it's right. pretty, pretty reasonable to say, the government doesn't always tell us the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I so I, I think that this is the other really difficult part of the issue that 
Um, work in rhetoric, I think, is uniquely attuned to understand, which is that skepticism is not a sign of ignorance. It's not a sign of um, that, that you should just be disbelieved or not listened to. It is actually a sign of healthy engagement with the issue. And it's mm -hmm. historically normal. It's normal to be concerned about this thing yeah. that's being injected into your body. <laughs> it's normal to be skeptical and doubtful about the, what the government is telling you to do. Um, it's normal to be concerned about what science has done and whether or not it should happen in the world mm -hmm. um, and the decisions that are made based on that. So all of those things are actually healthy signs of rhetorical situations. Yeah. Whereas more oftentimes or too often it gets treated as it's very stigmatized. It gets treated as a sign of ignorance. Um, it gets treated as though like, well, you're just some stupid idiot who thinks MMR causes autism and I can't even talk to you. Lots mm -hmm. of people say things like that, right? And so like understanding doubt as, as healthy and normal and uh, a sign that a person should be engaged with is as I think the, the way that people who are aiming to expand vaccination should sort of read that situation. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it speaks to kind of this issue of just, I mean, kind of the work that medical rhetoric does, right? Like trying to get conversations closer together because I mean, I, a lot of times, yeah, like people who work in medical communities or who are the scientists, they probably understand issues regarding vaccination in terms of things like statistical, like how often is this? What's what are the actual risks? Um, and so I think people who are engaging the science from that angle are going to look at it one way versus people who their main exposure is the anecdotal uh, experiences, the very real lived experiences of people in their community, hmm. you know, like how do you make decisions? And so part of what I think, you know, medical rhetoric can help do is to try to bring those conversations closer together because, you know, it, it's like patient advocacy. Like people need mm -hmm. to understand right. the full picture, not just, you know, what's been talked about in parent groups, right? Like, I mean, that's one piece, but it's it's bigger, right? Yeah, and I think a healthy dose of humility all around is valuable. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, again, like with, in the case of um, 2009, 2010 H1N1, there was uh, a flu vaccine. There are lots of different vaccines that were created in response to that. And in Sweden, they administered Pandremix, which was not administered in the United States. And as it turned out in Sweden, there it's a there's a particular genetic marker or something. I'm not a geneticist that exists in Sweden that had a bad reaction with uh, the vaccine that was administered there and caused narcolepsy mm -hmm. in children. And you know, there are a lot of um, discourses and concerns and fears about H1N1 vaccine as those came out. That was the research project that I started this work in. People were really worried about the vaccine and charged all kinds of things and, and were concerned about all kinds of things happening. And yes, many of those things turned out not to be true, but it's not, they weren't crazy for being worried about it because it actually happened in Sweden, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, science scientists, I think the more that they understand, at least from their own perspective, that at, things might unfold differently than they're anticipating. They might do everything that our current scientific methods um, say will work and still when it's deployed among millions of people something different might happen and happen, yeah. mm -hmm. that's that's a part of the scientific process and again to question it 
isn't necessarily to be stupid or a conspiracy theorist, but rather to be a thinking person who who has questions and wants answers about how this works and whether or not this is the right thing to, to d be done. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, and let's make no mistake with any of this. I mean, influenza still kills how many millions of Americans a year? You know, just on the right. on the on the natch on the regular, mm -hmm. you know. And I heard the flu vaccination this year is quadrivalent. It's quadrivalent, yeah. And the reason I know this is because Paul said this to me like six times before I Googled what that meant. Yeah, I had a homework assignment for my class where I sent them the CVS receipt for my vaccine and said, "What is this? Go down the rabbit hole and figure this out." And they ended up just kind of poking down any line of inquiry they wanted to, starting with, you know, flu zone quadrivalent 2020-2021. Great. Find out about it. What can you tell me about this? And they went in all kinds of directions based on their own interests on who is the manufacturers. What are the history of the manufacturers? What is flu zone anyway? What does it mean to be quadrivalent? Oh, H1N1. That was Spanish flu, right? And so they just sort of going down this whole <laughs> inquiry-based thing. Uh, and a couple of people stumbled across, well, influenza still kills, you know, millions of Americans a year mm -hmm. because Bob doesn't get a vaccine at his high school and he comes home and gives it to grandmother, you know, and she dies, you know. And uh, it's it's still out there kind of running running rampant. I mean, mm -hmm. flu influenza is still a, a killer, a killer. But one other yeah, thing. And, and, it's, and flu vaccine is just, it's so fascinating because it's it's more complicated than the other vaccines, right? Like we've been giving polio now since the 50s. It's kind of the same vaccine yeah. where, you know, we've stopped giving the oral vaccine because that was actually giving too many people polio. And, you know, we're, I mean, we can all feel like pretty confident that that's why we don't get polio anymore. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, flu vaccine is tough. Right. Every year it's a little bit it's of a guess. Yeah. Um, there are years when it's not a good match for the, the viruses that actually circulate some people, you know, so like. That is one of those complicated vaccines where you you can get the vaccine, you can feel terrible yeah. afterwards, yeah, yeah. you can get a mild, you know, a, a robust immune response that feels like flu. So that's complicated. Uh -huh. And then you could still go on to get another strain that it doesn't protect against, right? Like, and so it's important to get, everyone should still get it, but it, it complicates socially and culturally our experience of flu and flu vaccine and vaccines as these like inherently individually protective things. Mm -hmm. um, because of, of our lived felt experience often works in contradiction to what the vaccine does at the population level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do we think about this knowledge in respect to a faith community and a welcoming faith community? Back to the podcast title. Yeah. <laughs> That's my softball question of the day. Uh, That's a softball? Well, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Well, I think it goes back to, um, I don't know, I've always thought, you know, vaccines, I trust the people who say you need this vaccine. So I don't, I guess I was just a trusting person. Okay, I need that. So I'll just get that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it's worked out for me. Um, but I can also see people like who have reactions to the vaccines and stuff, get worried and scared and stuff. Um so part of it is like, I just need somebody to tell me what to do. And the other part mm -hmm. of it, I need somebody to help me guide me through the questions I need to ask. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where maybe the church can come in and say, look, we're, we can get you help. We have resources. Um, we have a podcast that has <laughs> yeah. this information on it. There's a mm -hmm. book out there that can help you, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
Well, I have, I have a question for Sherry and Marty on this. What, what role does discussion of health and or medicine play in your church on, on, under normal circumstances, not necessarily about vaccines, but how are things like medicine and health discussed in a, in a faith setting? Great question. I think it's more of how can we help with with situations. It's more of like a community service that if we can provide, um, you know, uh, when COVID hit and we shut down, we did a thermometer drive. Like we got tons and tons of thermometers for an area of Alexandria that didn't have them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's when you talk about health and it, it's more of like, what can we give to help certain situations? It's, it's more of that line. It's not more of, uh, talking about it theologically or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think, you know, I think it's something that we do sort of localized within how do we address health concerns within the community? I think, um, you know, we tend to, especially like I'm a deacon, we tend to know who's not doing well health-wise within the church, right? Um, We don't make recommendations about how their health treatment should look, right? (laughs) What vaccines they probably should get. Right. But yeah, so I think, you know, we're making sure that we're attuned to, okay, so, you know, a person is sick. Well, can we, can we do a meal train and get them some dinner so that, you know, because we take care of the very human aspects that go along with health issues. Um, but yeah, and then I do see us, I think we, one of the things I think our church does try to do is stay attuned to what's happening in the community. So I think the thermometer drive was a good thing where we say, here's a health thing that we can do. Same thing, like, I mean, you know, we... The food drives. And- food drives or... Uh, personal hygiene product uh, drives because, you know, we need that kind of thing. But I, I, I think that's, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Is a vaccine drive a bridge too far? I mean, faith community? we've been advertising the, the community, the free community flu. Yeah. So part of it's just, I guess, information sharing. Yeah, information sharing for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, you know, there's a lot of churches that um, do blood drives and stuff yeah, like yeah, that and hold them at their churches. That's something we haven't done, but I mean, there's a, there's things where the medical world and the church world come together on, um, and those are good things. Mm-hmm. Um, but far as like knowledge about, you know, the fear of medicine and stuff like that, we don't, we don't talk about that a lot in yeah. church. I, I think, you know, in the times of COVID, we've had, we have had some more targeted discussions mm-hmm. about health related things. So like the question of, you know, when to close the church down, when to reopen it, what will reopening look like? And even just, I think we have people in our church community who are very dedicated to the health of our community. And so in early, uh, online versions of the service if people were too close together we we got reminders that social distancing is very important on the camera yeah yeah so uh marty got his tape measure out and we we measured to make sure that our singers were separated effectively except for robin and marty because they're one household but everyone else yeah yeah um yeah and i think it's just since yeah i was just as i oh oh, go ahead no no go ahead i wasn't going to say anything important 
<laughs> me, well, me either. But um, yeah, as I was just, I was thinking about this for today, it reminded me of, a, I, I interviewed a pediatric oncologist when I was doing my dissertation research. And she, you know, so obviously she deals with incredibly sick children all the time. And she said that one of the things she started encouraging people to do is, right, when a child in a community becomes seriously ill with cancer, everyone says, what can I do? What can I do? And she said, you know, yes, like meal trains and, um, you know, donations and stuff like that. That's all great. But the thing you should really do is get a flu shot and get your chicken pox vaccine. Mm -hmm. Because that's what will allow that child to go play with their friends, go back to school, go to the grocery store with their parents. That actually will like alleviate a problem for that family because they don't have to worry about like decontaminating themselves when they leave and come into their household and all these kinds of things because kids going through chemotherapy are obviously incredibly um, immune suppressed. And Mm I, I think I thought that was a really interesting way of um, making these discussions about health a part of how we interact in the world, mm-hmm. right? Rather than it being like, oh, so-and-so is sick. Like, how can we always be building up the health of our community? How can we yeah. always be thinking about these preventative health practices as things that strengthen our community and are a way of doing things for each other in the normal course of things? And um, Yeah, I think that's really interesting because it's like, I mean, how many times have we talked about, oh, like this person, you know, who's struggling with cancer can't come to church because the rest of us are too much of a risk, right? right? Right, Like it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, what do we do to make, you know, our sanctuary a healthier space for all people to enter, regardless of their immune system? Yeah, my running theory on just like how to fix things. I mean, I, man, part, part of rhetoric is like, there's no such thing as like fixing things. Um, I love when people say like, well, one day they'll come out with the study that just convinces everyone. It's like, no, that's not how persuasion works at all. Um, but <laughs> Same thing with I God, think, one day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day. But I think the one of the problems with how we deal with vaccination now relates to time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when our parents most often presented with the, the options or the, the need to vaccinate their child, it's in a very tense moment. It's maybe right after they've given birth and their child is getting hep B, it is, which is not like a time to think about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's maybe when they bring their two month old to a well baby visit and their child is screaming and they haven't slept in three weeks and they don't know what they're doing and everything is very confusing and they have 10 minutes with the doctor to ask all of the questions about everything. Mm-hmm. That's not a great time to say, so let's have a really, you know, inspired conversation about whether the, the the health of your community and your baby as it relates to it. That is just not the time for that. And yeah. I, you know, that's so much related to the medical system and how our medical system just works. And I've often, I've often wondered and thought that a better mechanism for addressing these concerns is to make it a more constant conversation mm-hmm. so that the the decision point isn't when the conversation is happening. The conversation is constant, mm-hmm. but then the decision just sort of is, is upon you all of a sudden. But it's a thing you've already sort of thought about and decided to do mm-hmm. um, or already exactly. have access to discourses that indicate it's a good thing to do rather than just, oh, I guess you said to, so I guess that's fine. Or, well, my cousin wrote this thing on Facebook and now I'm scared, so I don't want to do it, right? Uh You know, not making those the conversations, but rather like, oh, we talk about this all the time in my new mom's group. We talk about this all the time here. We talk, you know, we talk about all the things that all these different vaccinations do 
in all of these spaces. And so um, it feels more like, a, again, you're participating in an activity that's ongoing rather than like presented with a high stakes decision that you don't know that you're that you're fearful of in a, a tense moment. Um, and so I wondered, I wonder to the degree that faith communities could could facilitate that conversation in different ways. Yeah, I think that would be a uh, a great thing to do. It would not be the norm of what we do. Mm -hmm. um, because I think when, you, when we were talking about this, I was thinking, why didn't we not talk about health issues? And I think we think that all the health problems are somewhere else, mm. right? So, so our response is, let's get a mission group and go to a certain spot and do this medical mission trip and help people, blah, 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 which we don't even understand our own medical circumstances around us, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's the more conversations that we need to have. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, I think this is exciting. I think it gives us a place to go with our faith community. Like, what does this conversation look yeah, like? Definitely. Um, I will look forward to hearing from like others within the community yeah. about what does this look like for us? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool. So Heidi, where can people go and buy your book? Um, you can purchase it directly from Amazon. Uh, it's called Vaccine Rhetorics. And you can also buy it from the publisher directly. It's Ohio State University Press. Um, and you can also find out about me online. My personal website is hylawrence.com. And there's also a, a website for the book called vaccinerhetorics.com. Awesome. And we'll put all of those in the show notes for our podcast uh, so that people can look out for that stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. awesome. Thank you so much, Thanks. Heidi. Yeah. yeah Thank this you has been guys. Great. I hope that this was okay. <laughs> I kept thinking, like, are people listening to this? <laughs> Not right now, but they will in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a week or so. Or yeah. maybe a yeah. week. Yeah. yeah, in a week. Yeah. So. All right. Well, great. Thank you all so much again. This was wonderful. It's really lovely to meet you, Marty and yeah. Paul. And it was great seeing you, Sherry. I, I miss you. I miss, I miss you so you much. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Ah, cool. Thanks, everybody. All right. All Thanks. Right, have a great rest of your day. Great day. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Sherry Spiegel, Paul Fitzgerald, and This Most Unbelievable Life. For more information, please check us out at www.thismostunbelievablelife.com. <laughs>